0: Line. in case you don't know, I'm not Tom, but uh, Tom's away with family, and uh, it is a privilege always to stand here in the pulpit in his stead, and to tell you how much uh, it just means to my heart and my family's heart to be able to serve here at this church with this staff. It's a great, great place. Well, if you were here at our uh, Christmas Eve service, Tom talked about coming home. And one of the things he mentioned was that, you know, even as good as home is, even as wonderful as it is, there's always something in our heart that longs for more. And that's put there by God, for God, to make us anticipate eventually the time that we're going to get to be with him when we finally get to really go home. Well, with that in mind, I want us to turn to Luke chapter 1. See, this morning we're going to explore the announcement of the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 1. Jesus declared in Luke 17, 21, The kingdom of God is among you. The Old Testament age ended with the book of Malachi. The age to come will begin with the second coming of Christ. And we are living in the age some have called the already but not yet. If you look on the screen, you see that diagram that gives you a picture of the age that was the old testament then you have the present age and then you have the uh, age to come the age to come the, the it's the period of time before christ's return and the inauguration of the ultimate kingdom is the present age to live in this already but not yet period of time is no easy task see to live in this already but not yet creates tension To enjoy the now of the kingdom while living in the not yet makes us different than the rest of the world. We're continually challenged to set our minds on the eternal, the not yet, while living out God's plan and purposes for us today. Paul writes in Colossians, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. See, Jesus challenges us in the Sermon on the Mount mount, to live out the ethics of the kingdom in the here and now. But Paul also writes in Titus, For the grace of God has appeared That offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So the tension for us in the already but not yet is real. Jesus referred to this in his words in Luke 17. The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of Son of Man, but you will not see it. This longing stands in stark contrast to the casual neglect of our culture. Jesus also says in in Luke 17, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. You see, in the days of Noah, while Noah built the ark... No one believed that it would flood or that the ark would be necessary. So what's a good example of the already but not yet? We've all just experienced it. It's like seeing presents under the Christmas tree and waiting for the time to get to open them. Tom's favorite friend, C.S. Lewis, says this in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's always winter, but never Christmas. That's what it feels like to live in this already, but not yet. See, most people don't even process the fact that Jesus came once, let alone that he'll come again. Many believers don't believe or live in this reality in their hearts, and it isn't reflected in their lives. The not yet has been hard on so many as they have gone through persecution and hardship. And for the last 2,000 years, the question has been for the church, how are we to live in the not yet as we await the return of Christ? This morning, I want to look at the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke and look at four different aspects of this story that hopefully our hearts will be stirred to believe in the eternal, in the unseen, just as much as we live in the here and now. So that we can live for Christ with a renewed passion and energy as we enter into a new year. You see, when Luke wrote his gospel, more than 400 years had passed since Malachi's time. Without a word of prophecy or a sign from a prophet of God. The book of Malachi was the door that closed the Old Testament era. Although rescued from exile and returned to Jerusalem from Babylon, Israel's return had not gone well. Life was hard. There was indifference. There was discouragement that had set in. There was a neglect of religious duty and a faltering faith in God. The book of Malachi was the last promise that Israel would receive until the the events that we're going to read about and study in in the first chapter of Luke. And the priesthood... That Malachi condemns eventually will control the religious and social life of Israel. And by the time of Luke, Israel will also be under the control of Rome. So Luke introduces us to a couple in this first chapter Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah was an ordinary priest, he was one of seven or eight thousand priests of his day. The priests were divided into 24 divisions after they returned from Babylon, and each division had 300 priests. They were called to serve two one week terms during the year. They were chosen by lot to participate in the different events of temple worship. The name Zechariah means the Lord has remembered. Elizabeth, who is also of priestly descent, and her name means my God is an absolutely faithful one. Both names pointed to the fact that God keeps his promises. You see, Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in the sight of God. It says this in verse 6. But there's a problem. The couple hadn't been able to have any children. In every culture, this can be a heartache, a disappointment. But for the women in ancient Hebrew culture, The burden of not having a child was seen as a disgrace, maybe even a punishment. We know from Scripture that Hagar looked down on Sarah and ridiculed her. We know that Leah referred to her former barrenness as misery. Infertile Hannah in 1 Samuel wept bitterly. Elizabeth even says in verse 25 of chapter 1 that she calls her barrenness a disgrace. We're told in this chapter that they were beyond childbearing age. There was no hope for children. They felt like their time had passed them by, at least so they thought. See, Jewish religious tradition was that as the priests came to the temple complex, there were lots that were cast to determine which role they would serve at the temple. In this case, the incense lot fell to Zechariah. And in an instant, Zechariah was at the pinnacle of his professional career. The, honoring, the honor of offering incense was the grandest event of all events. No priest was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies except on the Day of Atonement. But here in this event, Zechariah was allowed to enter into the holy place and offer, sacrifice, offer incense on the behalf of the people as the sacrifice was being offered. Zechariah was serving God with all the other priests in his division. In the heart of this beautiful grand temple complex, the people were praying outside in the court of Israel. And then came the moment. Zechariah enters into the holy place. Before him was the richly embroidered curtain of the Holy of Holies. To the left was the table of showbread. Directly in front of him was the horn golden altar of incense, and to his right was the golden candlestick. Zechariah purified the altar, waited for the signal to offer the incense as the sacrifices were, went up to God, and they were wrapped up in the sweet aroma of incense and in prayer. But as the offering and the incense were being offered, an angel appears to Zechariah, and he struck with fear. The angel is Gabriel. He had appeared in Babylon over 500 years before to Daniel. And now he appears to Zechariah. When Daniel saw this angel, Gabriel, he was terrified. And he says that he fell on his face. Daniel was temporarily speechless and so would be Zechariah. Daniel's encounter and vision had to do with the revelation of a future Messiah. Zachariah's encounter, God is signaling the time of the Messiah is here. I want you to see something, though, about this angel. Before he begins to tell both Zechariah and Mary the message, he makes a proclamation. And we might miss it if we're not careful. It's in verse 13 and in verse 30. Do not be afraid. See, the Bible talks about angels a lot more than we do. There are at least 20 references to angels in the New Testament. Two angels in the Bible are given names. One's that, one of them is Michael. He leads the military exploits of the Lord. The other is Gabriel. He's mentioned twice in Daniel and twice here in Luke. Every time Gabriel shows up, He always brings good news. But before Gabriel tells both Zachariah and Mary the content of his message, he says something again very, very powerful that I don't want us to miss. Do not be afraid. See, Mary will handle her encounter with the angel a whole lot better than Zachariah. Zachariah was terrified of the angel. Mary was not. It goes without saying that seeing an angel is not normal activity. Just doesn't happen every day. But both Daniel and Zechariah, who were righteous men, they were really scared of the angel. I believe it was because coming in contact with the holy makes us aware of our sin. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. See, I believe the presence of God through the angel struck fear in the heart of both Daniel and Zechariah because immediately they knew the condition of their heart and they were terrified. Mary, who was much more innocent, wasn't as afraid. And here's what I want you to understand. If a person knows Christ, Christ has taken away our sin. He's taken away the wrath of God. The writer of Hebrews says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who is promised is faithful. See, because of the presence of Christ, we can run to God. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they ran away from God. They hid. But the message of the angel, do not be afraid, through the power of Christ, tells us we can go to God despite our sinful condition. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews also says in 4.16, let us then approach God's throne with confidence. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. But this word from the angel to Zechariah and Mary also means something else. I think it means don't be afraid of the unknown. See, both Zechariah and Mary would be called upon to believe, have faith, press into the future And the words of the angel are just as powerful today. You see, we we all know we live in a world filled with fear. Most of it's justified. But that's why we must encounter the presence of God. 1 John 4, 8 says, Perfect love casts out fear. You see, the opposite of fear is confidence. If we have confidence in God, our fears fade. That doesn't mean that everything will always turn out the way we want it to. But it does mean that we can walk into the hard circumstances of life and we do not do it alone. Hebrews 13.5 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So church today, do not be afraid. Well, as we continue on, we see Zechariah And we see his doubt. (laughs) See, the angel told Zechariah, Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you're to give him the name John. The verb tense here seems to refer to the the prayer that Zechariah had just offered. Therefore, some think that he had either been praying for a son or for the restoration of Israel, the Messiah, or both. These would have been prayers that both he and Elizabeth would have been praying for all their lives. But Gabriel's opening statement is a bombshell for Zechariah. John means God has been gracious or God has shown favor. The logic of the name is clear. A prayer has just been offered for grace or favor, and that prayer was heard. A son will be born, and you're going to name him John because God has been gracious. In other words, aged Elizabeth will experience what she's longed for for years. Gabriel then gives a description of John, their son. He's going to have a heart that follows passionately after God. Jesus would later say, I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. John would be filled with the Holy Spirit. He would lead a revival that would ignite a nation and prepare the nation for Jesus' ministry. John was a forerunner, not just for Christ, but for those who would be followers of Jesus because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Zachariah's world, though, must have come to a standstill. As Gabriel awaited Zechariah's response to this powerful declaration, Zechariah, though, responds with complete disbelief. He asks the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. See, Zechariah shouldn't have doubted for a number of reasons. He was a man of faith. He knew the scripture. God had done this before and he could do it again. He was a righteous man. He ought to have had a bigger view of God. And if all of that wasn't enough, he saw an angel And the angel wasn't just an angel, it was Gabriel. And yet he doubted. He disbelieved. This was serious, guys. (laughs) Because his doubt, he implicitly denied the power that would be so central to the gospel the power of the resurrection. If God could not give Zechariah's wife Elizabeth the ability to conceive, how could he raise Jesus' body from the grave? The priest's unbelief unknowingly was subversive to the entire message of the gospel. The coming of Christ, the work of Christ would do no one any good without faith to believe. It may have been because of disappointment, It might have been because of discouragement. But for whatever reason, Zachariah didn't believe that God could answer his prayer. Now, I want to take just, you know, as Tom does, I want to take an aside here. And I want to ask you a serious question. How often do you pray a prayer and not really believe that God can answer it? I think we all do at times. Gabriel reacted decisively to Zechariah's doubt in verse 19 and 20. His declaration reminded Zechariah where he'd come from and who he was, and it was a contrast to Zechariah's unbelief. I stand in the presence of God. That statement was meant to shame the priest, as was his emphasis on Zechariah's rejection of the good news. And the penalty for the man's unbelief fit the offense. Because Zechariah's tongue had uttered unbelief, he was struck speechless. The aged priest would have nine months of silence and plenty of time to contemplate the condition of his heart. It didn't take long for priests to offer incense, and normally the priest came out quickly to lead in the blessing to the people. The crowd wondered at the delay, and when Zechariah finally emerged, he couldn't pronounce the blessing, for he was mute. The word here can also mean mute and deaf, so it's probable that Zechariah's world was completely silent for nine months. But in contrast to Zechariah's unbelief, we see Mary's belief. See, the setting of the announcement of Jesus' birth is a small town called Nazareth in Galilee. And we're familiar with this story. But see, the reality is Gabriel doesn't go to Judea, the heartland of God's work through the centuries. Gabriel goes to Galilee, a land that was the subject of Jewish contempt because it was of mixed population, Nazareth was an incredibly small village, not even mentioned in the Old Testament. Nazareth was a stop between the port cities of Tyre and Sidon, was populated by Gentiles and Roman soldiers. When guileless Nathanael talked about Nazareth, he said, can anything good come from there? Implying it was miserably corrupt. But in the world's eyes... Mary was also not much of an account either. She was too young to know, have known much of the world or to have accomplished anything. She was probably between the ages of 12 and 14. She was a peasant girl. She had no education. She had a very limited knowledge of Scripture. She would marry humbly, give birth to numerous children, never travel farther from a few miles from home, and one day die like thousands of others. So, we have to embrace an escapable fact. The greatest news ever proclaimed came to the humblest of its people. Mary says exactly this in her song in Luke 1 46 through 48. She says, My soul praises the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. In verse 26, The angel continues and he says to Mary, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. See, Mary's humility, her humble state, makes her the person that God chose above everyone else to pour out his favor upon. And we see this, we see this humility in the contemplative nature of her soul. The literal translation of verse 29 when Mary was troubled at the saying of the angels really means that she took the angels' words and she pondered them. She she held them close to her heart. She's such an example to us in our frantic culture because it, it takes contemplation. It takes seriousness as we handle God's word to understand the message that he wants to communicate to us. So so Mary's humility. Her attitude. Was what set her apart. But now Gabriel tells her about his purpose and mission. He said. But the angel said to her. Do not be afraid Mary. You found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus. In other words. You're going to have a a baby boy. This is going to be the Messiah. But the most important and powerful thing, and you you can read those verses 31 through 34 and see the message, all the things that the angel said. But the most important thing that the angel says to her, and look with me in verse 37. He says, nothing is impossible with God. The fact that God does the impossible begins with his grace. The miracles of the birth of Christ, the miracle of the birth of Christ, begins with God being able to do the impossible. At the heart of this proclamation is God's grace and the fact that we simply don't have to perform for him. This grace is the one thing that can transform a human life. See, we're all broken. We've all failed in one way or the other. And God comes to us and gives us his grace when we don't deserve it. And the more we walk into that grace and believe it and claim it and we find power to live life differently, we still fail. But grace has the power to change us. His grace is what made all of these other proclamations about the life of Jesus possible. It would be through his grace that all of the things that the angel told Mary would come to pass. See, Mary takes these words of the angel. She holds them in her heart. And if you look at the life of Mary in contrast to the life of Zechariah, Zechariah looks like a king. Mary's just a humble child. Yet Mary found favor with God and will be used by God to do his most significant work. So what does this mean? It means that for all of us who think that God can't use us, we're wrong. It means that for all of us who feel like we don't have what it takes, we're wrong. See, God's plan is to use ordinary people who are open to his work, and through the Holy Spirit depend on His grace. See, the, the news that Mary would have a son and the child would be God's son would have been staggering. Mary was hearing that she would be the mother of the long-awaited Messiah. We can't miss this. Gabriel's words were an interpretation of Second Samuel chapter seven, verse 8 through 16. It was a foundational messianic prophecy called the Davidic Covenant. Mary heard these words. She knew their implications. She understood the gist of the angel's announcement. And it was this You're going to become pregnant. You're going to call your son's name, Salvation, Yeshua, Jesus. He's going to be the Son of God. He will be the Messiah. (laughs) What an earful! What a heartful, humble, reflective Mary thought about it. She understood. But then she asked a logical question. How will this be since I'm a virgin? Literally, how can this happen? I've never known a man sexually. See, Mary's question wasn't disbelieving. It was biological in nature What we see in Mary's attitude was simply, as she says this in verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. You see, Mary doesn't say like the priest Zechariah, give me a sign. She just says simply, I believe. It's been said that situations don't always create character as much as they reveal it. She humbly submits to the will of God. She believes in the power of God. Paul wrote about God's power and he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. It's simply put, we experience God's power when we submit to his will. And when in our strength becomes when we acknowledge that we are weak and we depend on him. But it's not until we surrender our will and simply believe his word that the power of the Lord can work in our lives. The first beatitude says, blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of God. See, one of the hardest things we have to learn as Christians is that we can't do this on our own. See, Mary was the conduit of the fulfillment of the prophecy of the ages. But it wasn't until she said, I am the Lord's servant. Could the power of God come upon her and plant a baby in her womb? The ability to experience the power of God is tied to our willingness to submit to the will of God. Our nature is to be aggressive. We think we can handle life. Though that has some value in a work ethic, it doesn't work in our relationship with God. Jesus said, except a man humble himself, pick up his cross and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. See, Mary had a poverty of spirit, a humbleness, an attitude, a willingness to submit that allowed her to not only experience the power of God, but to be able to believe in the impossible. Mary knew her story would be questioned Indeed, Joseph himself first doubted it. She knew that the death penalty was prescribed for adultery. New Testament history records that Jesus' enemies on more than one occasion implied that he was illegitimate. But in light of these daunting realities, Mary's faith and response is all the more powerful. Part of the news that the angel gives to Mary, and this is the last part, is that Elizabeth, her relative, is going to have a baby. Elizabeth is up in age. As we've already seen, she's gonna have John the Baptist. This will be a miracle. And Mary goes and visits Elizabeth. When Elizabeth's baby heard Mary's voice, so this is in verse 41, the baby leaped inside of her. Because she is overcome with joy and because of all that God's doing, she breaks out in song. This is no longer the woman who was unsettled when the angel came to her. The anxiety of the situation has left. And here's what I want you to understand. When when Elizabeth comes to Mary, God is again, once again, proclaiming a powerful truth. We were never meant to walk this life by ourselves. See, Mary and the ordeal she would walk was the reason it was so important for Zachariah to believe and for Elizabeth to experience the impossible six months before Mary. See, Elizabeth was an example of God's faithfulness to Mary. If God could do the impossible in Elizabeth, he could do the impossible in Mary. See, God provides for us through our brothers and sisters in Christ. When he provides the ability to walk through the challenges and difficulties of life, it is always with the mindset that we share this experience with one another. I know we live in a time when we are very, very isolated. But the reality is, and the truth of this message, is that we were never meant to walk this road alone. And the other reality is God wants to provide Elizabeth for for you and me as we walk through this life But the other part is, he may want you to be an Elizabeth to walk with a Mary. See, if Christ is in us, Mary's humility, her openness to God, her posture of submission, and our belief in God's power is our model for discipleship. It gives us the ability to really believe, really believe that we do not have to be afraid. And that God still does the impossible. As we enter into a new year, as we are reminded that Christ has come, and we live in the already but not yet, have you trusted your fear to the Lord? In your fear, have you run to him and experienced his presence? Because I promise you, if you do, your heart will be renewed. You will find new strength. And you once again will be able to believe that God does the impossible. Let's pray. Father, you did a a work of grace in the life of Mary. But God, you want to do that work of grace in our life as well. Father, I know that we are all unsettled in one way or the other about what the days ahead hold for us. But God, we know that when we depend on you in that grace and humility that Mary so exemplified. That God, we will experience your power, your mercy, your salvation in ways that humble us and drive us deeper into you. So Father, today as we come to this close of this service, Father, I pray that you not only will stir our hearts with a renewed passion and a new sense of your presence. But God, give us strength to believe that you still do the impossible. In Jesus' name, amen.